listening to Cartridge Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk. I go on Twitter, and I'm here with uh, Matt Margini, uh, who uh, we've actually just met. Uh, this is the we we are we are new friends. Um, hello, Trevor. And, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Um, you emailed me with a book that you wrote, um, and I, of course, responded in the way I respond to everyone by uh, shamelessly asking if you will come on the show. Um, and you said yes. So uh, we're going to be talking about writing books. We're going to be talking about Red Dead Redemption 2, which is funny because, well, we could talk about this too, but it's a game that uh, I feel has kind of dropped off the face of the earth in terms of discourse, um, even though people were like super excited about talking about it before. So I think, you know, a second wave seems like the the place to be. And uh, and yeah, all that stuff. So um, uh, Matt, first off, like, um, thanks for being here. And second off, thank you for uh, having me, Trevor. Oh, of course, anytime. Uh, and second off, what um, what is your background? Where where what have you done? Uh, where how did you become an author in this way? Like, what brought you to video games? Just like, give us give us a rundown of of where you're at in your sort of like experience of gaming at this point. So I would say that nothing really brought me to video games i just kind of discovered them when Mm. i was a kid and then the obsession never really left um (laughs) and i think we actually have similar backgrounds in some ways because i also did a phd in english oh where at doing oh at at columbia oh great the good department there and um as i was as i was doing my phd which was about victorian literature the whole time i was writing my dissertation i was thinking man i just want to play video games and i also just want to think about video games. Um, (laughs) I don't want to think about giant Victorian novels. I don't want to read them anymore. I just want to play like Red Dead Redemption or Breath of the Wild or whatever was coming out at the time. Um, Wait, can I stop you and ask you, and and this is like an English PhD question, and I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you your favorite book because I hate when people ask me that. Um, But what is your favorite big Victorian novel to write on? Um, and I'll give you mine. It is, um, oh gosh, uh, it, uh, William Thackeray's, uh, oh, it's one of his giant ones. Oh, I'm forgetting. Vanity Fair? It's not Vanity Fair. Uh, I'm going to embarrass myself and just Google it. Uh, uh, it's one about a stock market crash. Uh, do, 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 not, not Barry Lyndon, not the perfect gentleman. Oh, it's not even one of his biggest one, I guess. Uh, but it's one of uh, I'll, I'll find the Thackeray. But uh, y- you tell me yours first. So my favorite, I think, is probably Bleak House. Ah, um, uh, that's Charles a really Dickens. good one to write. Yeah, on. yeah. I mean, I I love how how weird it is, um, and how it's it's one of those big fat Victorian novels that has like this amazing like amazingly broad cast of characters and and like. Um, and broad scope, but it it still feels um, super intimate and focalized in its chapters on like individual characters' consciousnesses, and and like it manages to feel huge and and small at the same time, and I, I just love that about it. Yeah, you know, I honestly like the um, like the uh, the cast of characters in that book is so broad like i mean it's 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 a dickens novel so that's not super surprising um but um it um it's and i'm I'm sorry i'm stalling because i just realized i didn't mean thackeray i meant trollop um 
because I, I conflate them because I've only read like one of their novels each and they seem like such big deals. Uh, and I, I always feel guilty. I um, cannot do the Trollope thing. I love, I love, um, oh, where, which, I got to look at his, his, uh, it's not one of his series, uh, but what I was going to say about, oh, The Way We Live Now, The Way We Live Now is my gotcha. favorite to write on. I love, yeah. I love writing on that book. Um, in any case, uh, yeah, that, uh, Bleak House is so good to, to think about and write on because like, like any Dickens novel, the cast of characters is so big, but like another one of his that I really like, Our Mutual Friend you can kind of like key in on two or three of them and it can feel like a whole novel in and of itself with mm-hmm. them as opposed to sort of like, I don't know, like uh, great expectations. You can only kind of do so much with each character and you have to kind of take it as a whole as opposed to these sort of like vignettes that feel so big. Yeah. And I also just love the scene setting in that novel. Like the way mm-hmm. it begins with like this image of the fog of London and a megalosaurus, like sort of stomping through it. Like it just has this kind of like, almost like pre Lovecraft weirdness at the beginning that I just really vibe with. Um, yeah. And it always, it just leads right into the, uh, right into the, uh, the, the house of uh, the house of money, like the bankers, the bankers yeah. space or the, or the, the house of chancery. It's, it's so good. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's Such a good. And like, I remember reading that I read that chapter. I was going on vacation, um, with my wife and I was doing lists also, we were going, we were taking a flight and it was, there was a layover in Ireland and um, I was reading that on an international flight at just like, I will not ever forget the experience of reading the first no- chapter of Bleak House. Cause it was so alienating and strange. Like even in an alienating and strange place, it's like, Oh, this is very weird and very cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, anyway, I totally took you off track. So you were thinking you were t- <laughs> you were wanting to play video games instead of reading uh, big Victorian novels, which I will completely confess I understand uh, all too well. Um, I just wanted to play video games instead of reading uh, big American novels of the 20th century. So with you there, um, what? Uh, how did you? How did you make your way to actually sort of doing that? Because. Uh, what I've found is that doing it within the academy is um, maybe even more fraught than I would have expected. That's interesting to hear because I I feel like, I mean, I, I talk a lot about the frontier in my book about Red Dead. And I feel like video games should be like the new frontier of serious mm-hmm. academic critical discourse. And of course, game studies has been a thing for so long. Um, but like game literary studies i feel like should be more of a thing um, oh i'm with you 100 percent. i just yeah. uh yeah my experience and i've i've probably gone on about this on the podcast before but my experience was um uh i didn't like a lot of the current scholarship and uh expressing my distaste of the current scholarship uh was not something that people really thought was good uh so people really wanted to stay within the tradition of what was called digital humanities then and then um uh that didn't do much for actually talking about games as texts, right? Like there's a lot of discussion of play and a lot of discussion of like ergodic literature. I was just in a, um, just the other day did a, uh, participated in a, a virtual conference in, uh, it, that took place in Gary's mod, which was kind of wild. Nice. First academic work I've done in forever. But, um, 
uh, Espen Arseth was uh, watching, uh, which was funny because a lot of the paper dealt with him. So I was lucky that he was very collegial and, and, and nice. And I was nice in my paper, too. <laughs> like, nice. But, uh, you know, his thinking about, like, ergodic play and stuff like that, which is sort of just, like, how the player deals with an ambiguous text, um, is such the thing in game studies. And it's just, like, it becomes impossible to write a book like yours or, or sort of, like, you know, what I, what I gleaned from your book, reading, reading about it and then breezing over it. Like it's, it's a book that isn't necessarily about like, Oh, like how does red dead deal with like the subject of play, but actually sort of like treating and so that you say Victorian novels, I totally see why the game would appeal, appeal to you treating it as sort of like a text or a large scale, sort of like multifaceted text. That I don't feel like exactly... the Academy is willing to do that. That is exactly what I'm trying to do in this book. And I also feel like so grateful to Boss Fight Books for kind of taking a chance on it. Because to be honest, it fits into what I think is a crack, like a discursive Mm -hmm. crack. If you look at the way that games are written about that isn't really that big. It feels like a sliver to me, like a a book-length critical study of a game that takes it seriously as a kind of quasi-literary text and, and looks at all of the different intertextual connections to like other westerns and literature and film and the the kind of philosophical foundation of the western like what the western really is about i mean that's what i'm trying to do here and what it isn't is a study of play it's not that um it doesn't it doesn't look at the game i guess ludologically which i don't know if that term is even used by people anymore i'm so i I think it's coming back (laughs) (laughs) um it doesn't look at it that way Although I do talk about like gameplay systems and stuff, but I'm always sort of like interpreting them, you know. Hey, you got. Um, I mean, it's it it is that it is that uh, that, and I don't know how much of a Hegelian you are, but uh, anyone anyone who knows me knows I'm always going to get there uh, at some point to Hegel or Marx, uh, one way or, one way or the other. Uh, but yeah, it is that dialectic of like form and content, where like if you're yeah. talking about the content, you're talking about the form, and if you're talking about the form you're talking about the content and i think if you're not like the way you talk about video anyone can talk about video games formally is uh by way of their systems of play like i think that would be something that leaving out would be that that would be kind of uh um malpractice if i can't (laughs) if that's not too extreme right well anyway to go back to my like origin story here not that it's interesting um when i was trying to write my dissertation and sort of banging my head against the wall of academic writing itself, which I found really kind of deadening in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I started writing for this magazine called kill screen that I know it kill was screen. just, yeah. yeah, it was just so liberating in so many ways because someone with my way of looking at things, which was still kind of in the Academy, still kind of um, serious minded criticism like could get published in in kill screen as a freelancer and just write like a a serious um sort of literary critical review of a video game um and they were super open about that and it just felt amazing because it wasn't the usual you know sort of product review style of looking at video games where i mean people don't do the checklist anymore with like graphics 8 gameplay 9 stuff like that but um but it still felt to me at that time around 2015, 2016, that video game reviews still felt like Amazon reviews. Uh-huh. Um, but at Kill Screen, they were something different. At Kill Screen, 
they were essayistic and they were interested in, in kind of using the game as a means to understanding some sort of idea um, that the game might not even be that interested in talking about explicitly. Like it was, it was really about interpretive criticism. Um, so I just loved writing for them. And then the magazine sort of went belly up because uh, the founder went and totally pivoted the business and turned it into something different. And, you know, nah. um, I wrote for a few the other old way that magazines that. used to go belly up. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to the current um, way. Right. But I wrote a piece for the magazine about Red Dead and lo and behold, um, the founder of Boss Fight Books, Gabe Durham, who was a fantastic editor. And I'm so grateful to him for um, taking a chance on this book. Um, he like found the piece and he was like, hey, do you want to pitch us? And I did. And so the rest is sort of history. Cool. Um, but what what I'm trying to do in this book is essentially like what Kill Screen Reviews did for me. Um, or in my, from my perspective, what they did and did really well, which is they, they look at games not as their own sort of siloed off, like, you know, arena of cultural production, but as art forms in dialogue with other art forms. I'm, I'm a real Janet H. Murray person. I'm a real <laughs> okay. Hamlet on the holodeck, like Stan. And nice. I believe that what she says in that book or what she said in 1997, and I think it's still true today, is that um, games should be like talked about intertextually as art forms that like pull from other art forms and also do their own unique things based on the affordances of the medium. Um, and that is what I was so interested in doing with Red Dead. I wanted to talk about how it pulls from all these other Westerns, how it's in dialogue with all these other Westerns and how it really stands kind of on its own as an entry in the genre that's just as interesting, just as complicated, and just as, like, sort of laden with um, with the baggage of this genre as other entries in the genre in other media. Um, and I wanted to look at it through that critical lens because I feel like using this game to understand the Western itself is, I don't know, just kind of a cool way to think about the game. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like, and also kind of like a, a way to think about video games moving forward that maybe makes a little more sense uh, to, I don't know, like, I'm trying to think about how to say this, like, makes a little more sense within, like, what we can do as critics. So, like, you know, the, I think one thing that is very popular in games writing is to think about games as sort of like, this new frontier that will help us, um, you know, delimit or explain everything that, uh, you know, was ambiguous before or like allow us some sort of like uh, magical ability to uh, have a new text, like a new evolution of text or a new evolution of reader or something like that. And I think like even even good video game criticism does this a little bit. But what I like about the way you're, you're approaching it is it's not so much about like, Oh, like what is, what is the, what is the, um, how is this, how is this going to like solve video games? How is this going to solve literature? Excuse me. Um, but more like how, you know, how does this sort of exist within a tradition? Um, and I think if you look at it that way and look at it as like an intensification or a, um, I mean, this is how I try to look at it, too, like with with writing about Final Fantasy or writing about a Metal Gear or something like that as like a continuation of the fantasy novel or the spy novel or or the spy movie, the fantasy movie. Like these are 
obviously their own medium specific uh, things, but also part of something much bigger than them. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, I think that one of the most important things that we as game critics can talk about is genre Mm. because genre structures so, so many of our experiences when we play games. And it's also one of those links to the past, not to use a stupid video game (laughs) pun, but like, but it, it is one of those ways in which games like borrow the tropes and elements and plot structures and ideas of earlier art forms and fit into those traditions. Um, and like, I, I really liked writing this book in part because it, it, it forced me to ask a kind of big question, which is like, what is this genre about? Mm. You know, like, like what is the Western about? Why do so many movies have deserts and cacti and tumbleweeds and cowboys and stuff like that? Um, what, what exactly do we get as an audience in terms of vicarious thrills? Um, and you know, like in our, our fantasy lives, um, out of like returning to this world over and over and seeing the same sort of plot structures over and over, even in a game like Red Dead Redemption, which, you know, cribs the plot of the Wild Bunch all over the place. I mean, it has a little bit of the searchers in there. It has a little bit of like so many different Western movies. I mean, what do we get out of this tradition and this like similar aesthetic and conceptual terrain? And that's that's kind of what the book tries to go into a lot. Mm. Um essentially thinking about how the Western has been many things to many people and to many generations of people. Like it was a different thing to people in the fifties um, than it was to people in the sixties and people in the seventies. I mean, the, the genre more than a lot of genres I can think of underwent so many different forms of evolution over the course of the 20th century. Sure. Um, and Red Dead kind of taps into all of those evolutions. Like the, there's a little bit of it that feels like, 1890s westerns there's a little bit of it that feels like the searchers um there's a lot of it that feels like those revisionist westerns from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s that really tried to subvert the old jingoism of those 50s john wayne movies and stuff Mm. like that but what the western always does is it transports you to this environment of absence and like brutal necessity you know it transports you to this frontier world where because things aren't really developed because you don't have the city because you don't have infrastructure because you don't have the law or the law has like a really kind of fragile foothold um you have freedom but you also have pain and suffering and there's there's a real kind of masochistic streak to the the pleasures of the genre because they're often about like Western movies are often about how we in the modern world are a little bit too cosseted, like we're too kind of like enervated and sapped of energy by the complexities of the modern world. And if you just go back to the basics, there's a kind of primitivism there. If you go back to the frontier, to the desert, to these places where you have to think about like, where am I going to get water? And how do I attach this rope to this thing? You know, (laughs) Uh, like, like there's, there's something kind of invigorating about that, that, and it'll bring you back to like sort of basic humanity. So that that's like one of the biggest ideas that's at the core of like every Western, even if the genre has evolved so much. Well, yeah, I think like even at even at the sort of like uh, the core of 
it's even at the core of like the ultimate sort of like counter western, which in my mind would be something like Blood Meridian. Oh yeah, like that that nature of like or that 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 will to find something you are you, you can do outside of society. Like you know that book critiques that all over the place, but at the same point, it's totally about that. <laughs> like it's absolutely about that. So like yeah, no, I, I totally I that's that's great. I I've, I've thought a lot about you know with westerns uh i've thought a lot about like how they you know focus on frontier and stuff like that but the idea of you know them strictly being about like um i don't know like how to say this like a uh, 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 self-sufficiency maybe um and, yeah. and particularly self-sufficiency as opposed to modernity is like a really is a good as a point i'd not considered before and you can imagine how you know, I mean, for an open world video game, I mean, what a compelling premise, like what a yeah. compelling aesthetic to tap into, because that's what open world video games are about, too. They're all they're always about the frontier. They're always about like stepping outside of society and getting to like do cool shit in this environment where you can do things that you wouldn't be able to do in your apartment. Um, and so, yeah. like, that's another thing that I try to think about a lot, like basically, well, what? Okay, so for the 20th century, um, American audience got a lot of vicarious thrills out of watching the Western over and over and over. There were, like, so many Westerns. Um, at, what, at one point, I think in, like, 1959, there were 30 different Westerns on TV. I mean, the, the, the century was obsessed with this genre. <laughs> sure. So why were they obsessed with this genre? But then why are we obsessed with the open world? And that's a we that I use kind of loosely, not... I don't. I don't mean that all gamers love open world games, but I think enough gamers do. I think that the, it's, I think yeah. the group is uh, the group of gamers as a. I'm not sure. Um, I guess like what would I, what would I say like gamers as a people are obsessed with um, the open world, or at least like <laughs> the possibility of getting the open world right. Like the idea of like actually having a game that is an open world that works um, as opposed to an open world where you're like, Oh yeah, like I see the potential, but it was just another open world. Like that to me feels like, yeah, that's like people want that so badly. Yeah. And to be honest, I want it too. I mean, I, I love open world games. Uh, mm. I love all the Assassin's creeds. I play them each one of them as, as they come out. Um, and there is something legitimately compelling about that game design paradigm. Um, the freedom of it, the kind of the way that it, it takes the usual video game completionism, but makes it about kind of the map and going around to different parts of the map and exploring mm. things. I mean, I eat that stuff up like catnip. I love it. <laughs> um, and I love it in Red Dead too, but the other thing or one other thing out of many things that I like about Red Dead and find kind of, um, compelling is that it's also in some ways like an anti-open world game because you don't you don't get to like like do skill trees and stuff you mm -hmm. don't you don't get to get xp you don't really get to conquer the map in the way that other open world games allow you to do in fact it's actually rather austere as an open world game like there there's not a lot that you get to do in red dead besides shoot people and gamble and maybe buy a house and um, and whatever. <laughs> and, and there's also like a real sense of like stasis 
to John Marston as a character. Like he doesn't really get to become a, an invincible superhero with like all of the cool um, item upgrades that, that even, even other open world protagonists in like Far Cry and games like that, that they get to become. Um, yeah. And of course we all know his ending. His ending is tragic. As all Western the- heroes tend to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the way the, the game plays with that tragedy and kind of magnifies it by making you feel like you are free and making you feel like you do get to do whatever you want to do and, and America is open to you and the frontier is open to you and all of these things that it borrows from the genre. I mean, the death is like a really amazing capstone to that. Yeah, and I, I guess like, you know, one of the things that strikes me about your work and especially thinking about like all of these threads that you've been tying together, like one of the things that really excites me about or, or interests me about what you're doing here is this thread of historicization, right? Like I think one of the one of the things that we can absolutely say about um the Western is that it like one of one of the things that is most difficult about it is doing um you know responsible sounds so serious uh but responsible or like serious um serious uh um historicization cuz like you know the tragic ending of the um of the the western is also you know necessary because um the tragic uh, ending of the western is also necessary because the the frontier closes right like it's not just mm-hmm. it's it's not just like oh we need we need the shakespearean ending um it's also that like historically we know what the end of this is these cowboys don't get to be cowboys forever the the you know the 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 native peoples uh don't get to live in their uh their world forever like the 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 frontier closes and capital eats it all up um but i wonder like within that sort of like pat historicization which i i'm sure you have a number of uh problems with uh because i'd be okay with that um uh what is the how would you historicize um how would you historicize video games like this is something that's always been really hard for me like finding some way to actually give a historicization to video games and i've talked to a lot of people who do it differently uh no one seems to have the 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 best way to do it but since you're working within genre like how do you how do you do what we all know needs to happen with film and literature of the Western? How do you do that with a video game of the Western? That's a very good and interesting question. Um, and, you know, I've actually kind of thought a lot about um, president when I was writing this book. This doesn't appear at all in the book, but I I used to read a lot of the film critic Jay Hoberman. He used to write a lot for the uh, Village Voice, and he has a great essay about the Western um, that he published around 1990, and it's called How the Western Was Lost. Um, And, Hmm. you know, in it, he talks about how there were Eisenhower Westerns, and there were kind of Herbert Hoover Westerns, and then, of course, there were Nixon Westerns. And we know (laughs) the the Nixon Westerns when we see them because – um, they have this like dark and foreboding um, atmosphere and this and this mood of political nihilism that's kind of like, um, you know, sort of Watergate era paranoia. Um, and also, of course, they're about Vietnam. Yeah. Um, yeah so sure. there are Johnson Westerns and Nixon Westerns that are always on some level about Vietnam. 
because Johnson himself made a rhetorical link between Indochina and the frontier. Like hmm. he, he literally said, nail that, co- that coon skin to the wall to American soldiers in a speech. Um, so, I mean, yikes. you know, <laughs> like one thing that I loved about um, or I still love about Jay Hoberman as a writer is that he's he's always kind of like historicizing film with presidents. Like he's always using them as sort of synecdoches for like what was going on in a cultural moment in American history. Um, and I think that like you can kind of continue thinking that way even into the 2000s and the 2010s and even now mm. if you look at you, like you can look at Marsden as a kind of Obama figure. Um, why is he an Obama figure? Well, in the sense that he's this like this man of essential decency who's just kind of like um, corrupted by his environment, like he, mm. like the same way that Obama was this like shining beacon of hope. But then he got, gets into the White House and he hires like you know um, Timothy Geithner, and and the, the swamp just kind of consumes him. Mm-hmm. Not to deploy the. This is where you you pivot and say like not so for our hero Donald Trump. Not not no no. I'm just I'm On just the kidding. Contrary, I'm kidding. Yeah. the consummate western of the Trump era is Westworld um, mm. because it's basically the Cambridge Analytica story. It's about it's <laughs> like this it's it's this this sci-fi narrative about like a a, a company that in which you are the product. Like, yes, you pay $40,000 a day to be in Westworld, but ultimately your data is what's being sort of leached out of you by this evil corporation. Um, And it's just, it's nihilistic in this new way that's really more about like how we live in a a fractured information reality where nothing makes sense and there's no objective truth and all of that. Um, And like in a way, Red Dead Redemption kind of looks forward to that too. I mean, like there's a lot of postmodern westerns that kind of like like are about the western itself in like weird destabilizing ways that aren't really that fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Um like there's um Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man from 95 with with Johnny Depp. A classic, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um and so um but like in Red Dead Redemption there's so much stuff about how like Jack Marston his son shouldn't be reading so many Westerns um, and is actually getting corrupted by the Western genre itself. Um, Mm. And, and so like in the same way that the Western was responsive to like um, forces in American culture in every era of, of its history, I think that you you could consider Red Dead Redemption and even Red Dead Redemption Two in some ways as like a continuation of that responsiveness. Like, because what Hoberman says in that essay is that the Western is the genre that America uses to talk about itself, to mm. talk to itself about itself. Um, and it's still doing that. Um, I think in Red Dead Redemption 2, it's doing that too in some ways. Although, frankly, I don't think it's as much of a Western period as Red Dead Redemption 1. But that's that's like a different thing. Well, no, go into it. Why, why, why do you think that? Well, I mean, it takes place in the Midwest. Um, okay. it's not, it's, I mean, I, I know that that sounds like pedantic, um, but you know, I mean, there's what I don't like about Red Dead Redemption two. And I say this as someone who wrote a whole book about Red Dead Redemption one is that it doesn't have the same like mythic quality as mm-hmm. Red Dead Redemption one. 
Red Dead Redemption 2 tries to be like a natural history museum diorama. Like it tries so hard to have this like this kind of verisimilitude that is that reaches for historical accuracy, but doesn't reach for the same like feeling of legendariness that Red Dead Redemption One has. Um, and what what's the what do you feel like? Why do you feel like the? I think you're right, but why do you feel like the the that legendariness is? Um, is sort of a requisite thing for the Western. Well, it's requisite because when you have a genre that feels like myth, when you have a genre that feels like allegory, um, you can have characters that kind of stand in for ideas. Um, And I think that that's what, one of the things that makes Red Dead Redemption one great. I mean, you have characters who are like these sort of broad archetypes. Like you have, um, Harold McDougal, the quack anthropologist and race scientist at the end of the game. I mean, Red Dead Redemption 2 (laughs) kind of wouldn't be caught dead with a character that broad a stereotype. But what's cool about it in Red Dead Redemption 1 is that, like, it's that kind of game. I mean, the characters are a little bit more outsized and a little bit flatter overall. Um, And it's part of that, like, lack of realism in, in 1 that you get that gets replaced with like hyper realism in two but because you have a character like that versus someone like nastas who's like the um the native american character like trying to broker a, a sort of peace between um his tribe and the gang of outlaws run by uh, dutch vanderlyn he's sort of a, a a deputy to dutch um and like and the way that that even Dutch himself kind of represents like the last stand of this kind of outlaw that's, that's getting eradicated by the March of progress. I mean, even the way that it represents the March of progress with a capital P, like it, it, it all feels like really kind of mythic and melodramatic in a way that Red Dead 2 kind of doesn't. To me. Mm. I wonder, like, I wonder if there's a, there's a parallel to be had between like the ways that video games, uh, at one point or another, we're sort of like willing to have blurred edges and 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 speak to kind of like the mythic that was just outside of the margins. Like thinking about uh, you know the, the the sort of most obvious version of this is the first Legend of Zelda, which is um, you know has so much unsaid about like the setting and everything that people have just continued to think about it forever. Um, and of course, that's part of that's partly like uh, uh, the 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 limitations of the hardware, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you know, also just the writing was not interested in filling in every detail, and now the writing kind of is. Like, I wonder how much Red Dead Two versus Red Dead One is about, you know, just the the increasing need to provide you know lore and explanation to everything in a game, as opposed to leaving some things kind of open and as you say mythic melodramatic as opposed to just like pinned down and psychoanalyzed and given you know long journal entries and stuff like that yeah i mean there's a great Patton oswald bit where he talks about how um george lucas goes up to him and is like hey you like darth vader you want you want to see a movie where he's a little kid (laughs) um and it's like and it's like asking, hey, you like ice cream? Well, here's a big bag of rock salt. Let me show you how ice cream is made. I mean, you know, like, 
and and I'm I'm butchering the bit, but like the point is really good. Like sometimes you don't need to see the origins of things, and I think that Red Dead Redemption too. I mean, just expands so massively on what was better left implicit or unsaid. Mm. You know, in the background of Red Dead Redemption One. I mean, I think there's a lot of amazing things that they do in that game, um, but but the whole John Marston sequence at the end I thought was unnecessary. Um, a friend of mine also pointed out that, like in 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 sort of flipping the storytelling the way it does, there's no like he knows what happens to certain characters because they show up in Red Dead One. So, you know, uh, Graham would tell me like this scene to. <laughs> There's no tension here at all. Like, yeah, I know what's going to happen. They're, they don't die because they're in a game that's set later in the future. Like, I don't, and I, yeah, I can understand that too. And that's sort of like uh, it goes against the sort of tradition of the serial, um, which of course has so much of its DNA still in the Western. Sure, absolutely. I mean, are you playing FF Seven Remake? Because I am right. Now. I I'm not. I will soon. Um, I'm I'm looking to to play it soon, but. I also was able to kind of look at my life and say, man, there's just I, I had like a couple of things going on at once. And I was like, I have to get at least like three or four of these things done before I play FF7 Remake. Yeah, there's a there's a great essay that I just read and I just keep thinking about it. It's by another ex-kill screenwriter named Yusef Cole. Um, it's in bullet points and it's about how FF7 Remake really kind of demonstrates that some of the beauty and some of the dangers of resuscitating an old thing that was kind of bare bones and minimalistic due to technical constraints. Mm. Um, Because when you do that, as FF7 Remake has done, and you like, you give Cloud like an amazing emotional backstory and you, and you like explain the whole honeybee in thing that was just really kind of bizarre and, and off putting in FF7. Um, you know, when you flesh out these details, in some ways it's good, but in, in other ways it can give what was once kind of like richly ambiguous a, a disturbing clarity. Mm. Maybe not disturbing, but but like a, a kind of deadening clarity. And I'm enjoying the game tremendously. I'm, I love FF7 Remake in so many ways, but I, I see that. Like, like sometimes it's like, well, this was better left kind of like as enigmatic, um, you know, polygons back on in the ps1 days or, or actually as we were talking about like before we started recording maybe it's better left like in my imagination like mm. what i thought ff7 was for two <laughs> decades yeah it's it's um i'm trying to remember where i read this i think i'm, I'm reading a book for uh for the next episode we do a podcast like a, a sort of uh imprint of the podcast where we cover a, a game and a book uh in in conversation with each other and uh um we're doing um It'll probably be out by the time this comes out, or or just about to be out. Uh, Calvino's uh, "If I Don't Understand a Traveler" and um, uh, Stanley Parable, and um, nice, yeah, no, it's lots good to, pairing. Yeah, no, it, uh, all all credit to uh, to my co-host Olivia, who uh, has come up with most of the pairings, all the pairings so far, and they've all been quite productive. But the um, you know, I think I think it's on in "If on a Winter's Night," um, although. For anyone who's read that book, there's like it's hard to pin down quotes in it necessarily. <laughs> but uh, um, there's a quote where a person was describing films and they said it had like the hazy quality of a film um, made, you know, before digital enhancement where like 
not digital enhancement, but like made before like modern production techniques where everything felt like it was in a dream. And to my eyes, that was better. Like there, there's something about like not being, or to put it differently, like uh, I don't know if you saw uh, the the ghosts of uh, Tsushima, um, th- uh, you know, kerfuffle uh, recently. Uh, but outside of sort of like the poor historicization in that game, one of the uh, one of the controversies was uh, that they included a black and white mode, and they said it was in honor of uh, of uh, Kurosawa. Um, and as a friend, uh, my friend Andrew pointed out to me, like you know, the reason black and white cinema is like is is done so carefully is because it's meant to sort of like look good on any kind of screen and be like exceptionally like crisp to the eye, uh, regardless of not being able to show everything. Uh, the point of this is to only look that way and like at its best on a 4k television. And so like (laughs) thereby taking all of the ambiguity and interest and like accessibility out of the art. Um, and I think there's, I mean, that's not what all intensifications of process do, but I don't know. There's something to that. The, the fact that there's no, like games specifically are starting to go towards like no ambiguity, like just a, a hugely anodyne space where everything is explained. Yeah. The explicitness of modern games is something that kind of irritates me a lot. Like mm. like in the most recent Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which I really liked a lot. Um, but like the whole Atlantis bit where you meet Pythagoras um, and he, and, and he he explains that that um, that they've that the ancients have hidden Atlantis away from the world, and he needs you to be like a steward for. I don't remember what the lore was like in that game, but like just seeing Atlantis explicitly in that game was just. <laughs> and and that's even after like I don't know in two thousand nine in Assassin's Creed two when they had all of those like little mini games with sort of. Um, Illuminati style like cork boards where you'd have to like like draw a line between George Washington yeah. and Lee Harvey Oswald or whatever. I mean, and it was it was all like kind of enigmatic in a really cool and frankly sort of unsettling way. Um, it's it's amazing that games just to use those two examples, but I think they are kind of like synecdoches in themselves in some ways. It's amazing that games have like gone from that level of like mystery and enigma. Um, I think they were literally called Enigma Codes or something. They were. Yeah, that was um, the that's the yeah. one Assassin's Creed play, game that I played all the way through. Yeah. And you know, and now and now it's like, oh, you literally found Atlantis. <laughs> that's a good example. I mean, it's also, you know, like that's yeah. Well, uh, let me ask you a question uh, that actually sort of directly relates back to the book with this. How sure. do you how do you Square, And it's a question that I have of myself, too, because, like, I'm also writing a book on games and it is tough in a number of different ways like that I didn't really expect before I started writing the book. Not least of all, because you have to constantly be you have to constantly take care to not um, not just assume a thing you like is is important. You have to kind of like interrogate it and figure out how it's important within a structure of things. And obviously you've done this with Red Dead. Uh, based on our conversation and and the book itself. But one of the other things that's difficult is this sort of like very, and, and I'm sure you can relate with this uh, more than maybe others could, um, this very sort of like sophomore year of undergrad 
uh, anxiety that you are overanalyzing the thing that you like and that you're just like mm. adding like a thing that I have never I haven't worried about about literature in I don't know a dozen years <laughs> like it's something that's so burned out of my fears at this point that I don't think about it um, with video games. I start worrying again. And so like, I wonder how much, how do you square having like an entire, I'm asking this in a way that makes it sound like I don't think you can, but I totally could see how you could. I'm just interested in how you personally do it. (coughs) Excuse me. How do you square having a whole monograph on a game while also sort of uh, lionizing the ambiguity of games and, and their narratives? Well, I actually don't agree at all with um, the idea that there's even such a thing as overanalyzing. And of course, oh, I mean, I, I would, you, I would uh, let me let me be clear. I totally agree with you. This anxiety I feel is uh, is completely irrational. Um, it's just oh, that, okay. yeah, it's a fear. It's a fear that comes. I mean, out I've of had me. it before too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I mean, especially for video games, like it's just I know I like them, and I know other people like them, and I'm like, oh, geez, am I being one of those people? that it's just like bringing way too much to the table just because I like a thing as opposed to there being something there. But no, no, overanalyzing, I I agree. Something I'd never worry about in literature, something I only sort of like anxiously worry about in video games. Sure. And, you know, I mean, the I think the root of that fear is is that is in the kind of the fear that's in the at the back of my mind all the time, which is that like um that video games are still for babies and that like, if you care about them a whole lot, um, you're a baby too. Um, you know, like I, I think that the idea that video games haven't matured as a medium is still kind of out there, even though it's like, frankly, I think odd to think that way, given that we've had a decade now of like the most amazing efflorescence of like, indie games and art games and uh, and sophisticated narrative games and like every conceivable genre about every conceivable topic um but you know like there's still a kind of inferiority complex among games and within games criticism um and i definitely felt it while while writing this book for sure um but what what was the kind what i what i never stopped feeling at the same time though was that it was important to analyze Red Dead simply because it was the tip of this big iceberg and the iceberg is the Western. Mm. Um, and like the fact that, that Rockstar made this game, um, and Rockstar is a company with all sorts of problems, um, with a lot of kind of, I think problematic things baked into their perspective as, as artists, like the worldview that they, that they espouse in their games is not my favorite worldview in the world, especially in the GTA yeah. games. Yeah. Um, but doesn't matter. I mean, I'm a death of the author, like hardliner, <laughs> right? Like it, it doesn't matter because what Red Dead is, is it, it's a, a mirror. Like you look at, you look into it and you see a reflection of the audience's deeper fears and desires and, um, and also this, these fears and desires that are kind of baked into the history of the Western genre. I mean, mm. the genre was always about the people who kept showing up to the, sh- the theater over and over and over to watch it. Um, it wouldn't have been so successful if it hadn't struck a chord with people that was really, really deep. 
Um, and I think that it's still a thing. The West, the Western still has that appeal, even though obviously it's not a dominant cultural genre anymore. And it's certainly not a dominant cultural genre in video games. Like, when was the last time you played a Western video game that wasn't Red Dead? It's kind of weird. That, <laughs> yeah, that there's not the a lot. I mean, one. <laughs> there, yeah, honestly, even even in the old days. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's also funny to think about, like... I think there's a lot of people trying to replace the Western in, in this is sort of like coming across in, in games like uh, cyberpunk, uh, whatever, 2077, um, the, the new CD project red game that's coming out, like eventually um, it feels in many ways, like it's trying to replace the kind of frontier um, that has been so, I don't know, effective in storytelling with another kind of like sort of like a frontier of uh, the human. So like a post humanity or something like that. Um, And it's amazing how, and maybe this is just me, but it's amazing how ineffective that is. Like it doesn't, it doesn't speak to that same mythicism as, as the, as the, the Western does. And like, I think like very good Westerns or the best Westerns can be these like amazingly like resonant political, things like i i would say like the first season i haven't watched past it because i was watching it with my wife and and she got she's not the biggest western fan but i talked to her to this much uh, <laughs> uh the first season of deadwood for me is, is kind of like that like it, it it works very well as a nice little you know resonant political moment uh because of its genre and because of the way it understands the frontier and and the the disappearing quality of that and what that means uh, in a way that like when cyberpunk works for me like i i enjoyed neuromancer like neuromancer works for me because I don't know, like it's fun and it, it seems to be have like an anti-capitalist message and like, it's, it's paranoid about development of, of technology and stuff, which is interesting, but it's not the same thing. Right. Like, so I think like the, and I'd be wonder, I wonder what you, what you think about this too. Like, I think games are trying to find and, and media in general is trying to find another frontier literature now that Westerns aren't as popular. And I don't think that's going to work. Well, I don't know. I think that every open world game that isn't Red Dead Redemption figures out a way to make the frontier anyway. Mm. Um, Like if you think about it, like Los Santos in GTA V is a frontier because it's basically L.A., but the law isn't as robust. You can do more stuff and you can be a criminal more easily. Um, In the same way, like, you know, Fallout games take place on the frontier um, the division takes place on like, isn't it like a literally a pandemic ravaged version of New York city? I think, I mean the, and then the division two is DC. I think, I think you're right. I never got too far I mean, into the division games. They didn't really do much for me. <laughs> I, I find it actually difficult to imagine an open world game that doesn't have some kind of deteriorated, um, version of society, right? Like it, like it, you have to have that in order to give the player the amount of freedom they would expect from an mm-hmm. open world game. Well, then um, to pivot from there, then wh- why don't we see more Western games? Like it, uh, you know, the 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 thing that you'd say in film or, or literature is to say, like, well, look, like people aren't people are more concerned with interiority than exteriority. That's why you have more like psychological thrillers or or whatever. Like the the idea of Terror is more interesting to people who experience it every. It's a million, you know, pop psych, pop psychological ways you could understand like the proliferation of particular genres that aren't the Western. But like, 
why in video games if there has to be a frontier and I, I don't think you're wrong but if there has to be a frontier why not a western frontier like why is it so why is it so niche i've been thinking about this a lot um and i think it i think it has something to do with just the nature of the kind of violence and precarity that you have in the western because mm. In in the Western, I mean, first of all, like, it would be really stupid if everything was a bullet sponge. Like, it would be really, <laughs> really stupid if you were John Morrison with the Gatling gun and you were fighting this boss that had, like, <laughs> 2 million HP. You're trying to tell me that a Doom Western wouldn't work? Actually, that actually sounds amazing. <laughs> um, I, I know. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, like... It, Really, if if you're going to be a purist about the Western, it's one shot, one kill. Mm-hmm. You hit them in the head and they're done. Um, and but not only that, like you're dead too. Like I actually think that there's there's a kind of dark soulsiness to the Western in that regard. Like like you're supposed to feel the fragility and the vulnerability of the body. Um, and Red Dead actually does that pretty well and Mm -hmm. it does that i have a whole chapter in the book about the euphoria engine which is something that rockstar kind of um implemented in in red dead and gta 4 and then they've kind of iterated on it in in their the games after that but it's this like sort of character animation engine that makes bodies behave in a kind of believable way when they get shot or when they Mm. hit objects and of course so many games have physics engines and and solutions for this exact um, problem, but the way that Red Dead does it, I mean, it's not just that John Marston's a ragdoll. He's like a particularly tortured ragdoll. Like he gets thrown around and mangled and shot and just <laughs> absolutely manhandled by, by like the environment and by other characters and by animals too. I mean, like he is, he's really at the mercy of that world. Um, and it, it works in Red Dead Redemption. I'm not sure that it would work in other open world Western games that are a bit less, um, I guess, willing to take that risk. Because it is, I think it is still a creative risk even after the sort of Dark Soulsification of everything. I think it's yeah. still a creative risk to make your character vulnerable. You know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, a game that I think about a lot and how it, it just did not work uh, to me anyway. Uh, and I think to most people, if refused to be believed, was a game that I like the only game, the only AAA game I ever got uh, early access um, was uh, I, I thought it was going to be the biggest coup. Uh, but then the game wasn't all that good was um, Far Cry 5, mm-hmm. which is fine in, in a lot of ways as a game. Like it's, it can be fun. I think like, there's some vehicle stuff that's fun in it. I, you know, the basic gameplay is enjoyable. You can ride a bear like it's. You know, there's there's cool stuff. There's like a just cause sort of like feeling to some of the things in it that, you know, it's just enough that it's fun. Um, but I think they wanted it to be sort of like a uh, justified style Western. Um, and it just isn't because you're never vulnerable after a certain point in that game. You you can just you can yeah. kill whoever you want. Like it is just uh, you are a bullet sponge. You can you can hurt whoever you want. You can kill whoever you want. It's no problem. Um, and at that point, you know, you're right. The fragility actually is what speaks is what like helps you understand, like, uh, 
why the duel is important. Not because like, oh, it's it's tradition, but because like, yeah, we're both putting ourselves out there. Like we could both just die right now. Yeah, and good westerns have restraint even when they make the the main character a kind of superhero. Like, okay, so in A Fistful of Dollars, um, Clint Eastwood can basically activate Deadeye in mm-hmm. Red Dead Redemption. And he can he can just do a single revolver shot that manages to kill five people at once. So he has that superpower. But it actually feels like a superpower um, within a world where like where he's so vulnerable and where um, people are so easily killed and where not a lot of that kind of thing happens. Like there aren't a lot of super abilities in that movie. There's only one. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a similar way in Red Dead Redemption, there's really only Deadeye. That's the only way that Marston kind of distinguishes himself um, as like better than the average um, sharpshooter. Yeah. Um I mean, there's also the basic control scheme, like you could lock on to people. And, and he has a basic fluency with weapons that I think is like, you know, obviously um, the mark of a video game protagonist. Like he is a video game protagonist. He is literally better at everything than everyone else. Right. Like yes. who is just an NPC. But there isn't a you, you can't like unlock an ability that lets you like inhabit a bullet and fly through the level into someone's head. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> at I a mean, certain th- point, there's a restraint. Yeah, at a certain point, realism does uh, rear its ugly head. Yes. And as and I, I'm the one who actually hates the realism of Red Dead 2, and so um, in that game, the, the vulnerability and the fragility is actually at an even... It's, it's, it's taken to an even greater extent, and I think almost it's taken off the clip. I think there's actually too much Mm. in Red Dead 2. Um, But the fact of the matter is, for me, um, I think the reason that video games right now are kind of incompatible with the Western genre is not just because the Western genre itself has kind of lost its pride of place in our cultural landscape. We don't really watch that many Westerns anymore. It's not just that. It's also that, like... There's something about like contemporary trends in game design that just seems incompatible with the way that violence should be meted out in the Western. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, it reminds me of, um, oh, and I'm going to forget. Oh, no, I, I won't. Uh, wow, that's amazing. I usually forget the names of everything. Um, it reminds me of, uh, of like the game uh, Bushido Blade. Um, yeah. And, like, how that game felt so strange when it came out. Like, just, like, wait, like, it's it's a fighting game, but the you have to, like, w- when you play it, you, you end up, like, in a duel that can end with one blow. Like, that's so crazy. Like, what is the point of that? And I think, like, the point of it is that is, like, actually how a, a duel goes. <laughs> like, it is yeah. one shot, one kill, effectively. But the question of like, well, why is that weird? Like, why why should that seem weird to me? Is precisely the question that you're asking there, which is, yeah, like, why why can't westerns work uh, in video games? Well, because you need like hordes of enemies in video games. Like, you don't have to be serious, Sam, but you do have to have like a decent amount of people coming to try and kill you. And if if you're vulnerable, if you're like a frail body in like a real world, then that's not going to work out so well. Yeah, for sure. And I think also 
it, it has a lot to do with just the the basic format of like a third person action game. Like mm. in a third person action game, you are literally the center of the universe. Like you can literally move the world around with the you know right stick or whatever. Right. Um, and and there there's very little in the basic design of that format that is that tells you hey, you're on an even playing field with all of these other creatures that are swarming you. And often swarms are the way that the game kind of communicates that idea. Like, no, you you can handle like 18 people at the same time. You'll be fine. Um, and there's also just like, I think, in, I think in, in a lot of games right now, there's also just a lot of emphasis on um, on game feel achieved through not like, I guess not like the strategic timing of things, but through just kind of like 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 game feel that kind of rewards button mashing. Mm-hmm. Like Final Fantasy VII Remake is incredibly guilty of this. Like it just feels good to hit things in rapid succession with <laughs> Tifa. It is so fun to just punch things. I don't know how many punches she does per second, but it's insane. Um, and I I play a lot of games like that. I mean, yeah. even the new Assassin's Creeds are like that. Well, the one like, exception that I can think of right now is Sekiro, which I just finished. Um, and honestly, I feel like a gamer king for finishing that it's game. It's so fun to finish. Um, did, you, did you beat the Demon of Hatred? Oh, of course I did. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that, is the, that was the moment I really felt. Yeah, it's tough. That was, that was extremely rewarding. But then again, it took me forever to beat uh, Ishin. So I, I don't know. Oh, it, it took me forever to beat Ishin. It was... It I know people who thought really, he was easy and thought other like, – Yeah. Not me. My brother-in-law said it was easy and I I didn't appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought like, it was mean-spirited. <laughs> I kind of like waltzed through Bloodborne and, and part of it was because I'd played so many Souls-likes that once I – the only struggle I had with Bloodborne was I played it right after Sekiro. So like I – I was playing it as a, as one would play that game, and that is not how you play Bloodborne. <laughs> you oh, know? yeah, for sure. Uh, I just kept dying and dying and dying. But, like, you know, I was fine with Bloodborne. But I got to say, some of the bosses in Sekiro, like, absolutely just threw me. <laughs> like, there were some yeah. real rough ones. But, anyway, you know, yeah. with Sekiro, it's it's the pleasure of timing. And it's the pleasure mm. of the the, like, quick, decisive button press at exactly the right moment that gets the kill and you can be killed in exactly the same way i loved the sort of the parallelism and the symmetry of that game how you also have um like you know uh what was it called like a stamina bar um that can be like and you can be death blowed also (laughs) right yeah um and you know i there's there's obviously a a huge market for that kind of experience because it won game of the year and from so many different outlets and people just love it um but i don't i don't think it's paradigmatic i don't think it's like your average game these days no no not at all and i think like i don't know like it's tough to say that games are getting this wrong because of course there's a there's a clear i don't know there's a clear pleasure in in watching numbers go up like i i'm there with you too like it's it's just fun sometimes to watch the numbers go up and and you know button mash and see levels go up and stuff but it's also true that yeah it does feel like we're kind of missing something in the complexity and the ambiguity and like 
you know, just the, the, the lack of complexity, either narratively or mechanically, that a lot of games, not indie games still have, but like a lot of AAA titles don't have. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of something like Jedi Fallen Order, which, mm-hmm. I mean, borrows from Dark Souls in all of these different ways, obviously. But um, but I kind of button my wash, button mash my way through that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I feel like it just had this sort of this. It necessarily had to um, dilute itself to, I think, reach out to a really, really wide cross-section of demographics. Um, it just, it, it couldn't be the kind of game that Sekiro is, even though Sekiro is, again, like a, a hugely widely appealing game. Um, and part of that is that Jedi Fallen Order is like a Frankenstein game. I mean, it, it borrows bits and pieces of everything. <laughs> right. And in so doing, it feels like nothing. Yeah, and I guess like the the kind of the kind of like a concept of um, niche or 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 like limiting appeal, right? Like the 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 fear of producing something that only appeals to a certain number of people, thereby limiting your profit. I don't know. That's like that's a big deal. Like that. That's, yeah. That's absolutely like something companies don't want anymore, and something that companies kind of like accepted as uh, you know necessary to be in business. 10, 15 years ago. And like at a certain point, creators can want as much as they want, but if they're making releases like AAA titles, they are at the whim of the the big companies. And that's kind of the story of Red Dead in a way, because mm. it was it was sort of referred to derisively before it came out as Grand Theft Horse. Yeah. Um <laughs> Which I love. That is but, funny. Um, I got but people people were a little bit skeptical when it was first announced. Like, well, okay, it's GTA, but I don't get to run from helicopters, and I don't get to, like, steal anything I want from the gun store. Does the gun store even have a machine gun? Like, mm-hmm. what, what am I supposed to do in this world? I mean, like, the the paired backness and the austerity of like a, you know, early 20th century Western setting, I think probably struck a lot of people. And I, I remember myself being sort of struck at the time as like, as in a way, a, a feature step backwards from GTA. But then of course it came out and exactly the things it does to take, to pare down the experience and take things away from GTA. Like the fact that there aren't helicopters, the fact that you can actually avoid the law pretty easily. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the fact that there aren't machine guns everywhere and you have to be a little bit more strategic with your aim. Um, you know, all of these things that make the 19th century world more limited, um, or the early 20th century world rather like they, I think really enhance the impact and the meaning of the experience. I I think they make it a more, interesting and complex and and meaningful game than it would have been with all of the bells and whistles of GTA precisely because it has GTA as this sort of like off-screen like foil almost mm, like yeah. like you you did all this cool stuff in GTA well you can't do it here but that's why it's cool it reminds um, me a little bit of how like how especially with early genre work um genres sort of like acted as def- defining elements to each other just kind of like off camera, I think, um, where like uh, a professor of mine used to say that the detective, um, the detective story or the detective show initially 
uh, they're never married because uh, if they were married, it would have nothing to differentiate it from the sitcom. And so, like, nice, yeah, it like it just totally made sense to me. It's like, yeah, that's absolutely right. That's why like Joe Friday doesn't have a wifey we see on screen all the time. Like, of course, or like why old radio dramas like they have, you know. I've been listening to a lot of Let George Do It, uh, which is this old radio drama because uh, my friend Sean McTiernan has a podcast called uh, Kiss Your Ass Goodbye where he talks about them. And it's it's, uh, not just Let George Do It, but a bunch of old radio detective dramas. And uh, in a lot of them, uh, the the detective has like a, a Girl Friday or whatever, but they're not so much like domestic partners. They're just kind of like you know, lieutenants that are like a, a sergeants or whatever that go with them that, yeah. you know, they can have some sexual tension with. And like it, it's true that like, you know, the detective genre has this ultimately defining thing happen to it because of something that, you know, it has no real concert with the sitcom. And I think you're right. Like I've never thought about it with video games, but you're totally right. Like the, the open world GTA game totally, totally influences what the open world Western is going to look like. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, to, I I think that in so many ways, Red Dead as a Western does exactly what you're talking about, because it, you know, you always have to ask yourself the question when you play the game, why does Marston have to die? Like, why did they make him die? Why did they kill off the player character? That's weird. I thought that the player character was supposed to be sort of godly and invincible. It's actually kind of weird and disturbing that he gets um, pumped full of bullets at the end. Um, But... The Western hero has to die a tragic death. Um, If he doesn't, some other sort of like tragic um, fate will befall him. Because as as you were saying at the at the beginning of this this whole interview, like the the larger tragedy of the Western is that the frontier is temporary, Uh Um, and everything that the cowboy does to kind of like um, to make the frontier a safer place, like he. He kills the 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 ant the animals and the bandits and also the Native Americans because there's a huge um, obviously racist subtext to a lot of westerns as you might imagine. Um, but everything he does to cleanse the land ensures his own destruction mm-hmm. and his own part of that cleansing. Um, and so the the cowboy always has a kind of expiration date. Um, but not only that, like. One thing that Red Dead does that I've never seen a video game do is it sends him home. I guess Mm. Red Dead 2 does this to an extent as well. But it sends him home for that late batch of missions um, uh, at Beecher's Hope with Abigail and with Uncle and with Jack. And you just kind of chill for a while. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a... It's a really incredibly boring part of the game in some ways, but it's deliberately so because, first of all, it overshadows that whole sequence with this looming sense that something is something bad is around the corner. Something bad might still happen. It doesn't feel like an ending because there's more of it. Yeah. Um, But also it really shows you how, like, as you were saying, I mean, domesticity is incompatible with being a Western hero. And domesticity is also incompatible with being like an open world hero. Right. Because yes. the stuff that you're doing in those missions is totally boring and you don't feel like doing it and you'd rather go shoot people um, because you've been 
kind of doing that for the whole game. And in that way, it so perfectly mirrors like one of the central dramas of the Western, which is that the cowboy can't be reintegrated into society. Um, like the cowboy becomes a monster. This is what happens in the searchers. Um, and like, I just, I just find that structural feature of the game so interesting in that regard, because it's really kind of about you as a player yeah, um, I, like I have this I have this part of the book where I talk about how there's like a treasure chest in the attic of John's house. And like you go up there and you loot the treasure chest. Of course you would. Because that's what you do in these games. Like you you are taking everything because you when you're an open world video game protagonist, you are essentially a looter. Like you just take everything <laughs> like another um, X kill screen writer who always wrote the best video game reviews he talked about how like in fallout i think it was fallout um four like the opening of the review his name's chris Briald, was here comes the trash man and it was and it and the whole opening of that review was about how you literally just go around in that game collecting detritus um <laughs> and like you do that in red dead too i mean but when you loot your own house there's a fundamental like like mismatch there. Like there's something off about that. Yeah. Um and the game and that's part of the joke and it's part of the like really tragic irony of the whole experience. Like domestic life is incompatible with this genre and that's one of the things the genre is about. It's it's a bit like um uh I, I'm sure you've read it but the or are familiar with it but like if the audience isn't uh it it, it reminds me of kind of like the like breaking down uh, Levi Strauss's or Claude Levi Strauss's um, incest taboo where like, you know, incest is a problem because if you simply keep within your family to reproduce, then you never have to have a society. So in order to have a society, you need to put a taboo on incest, which is to say like, you can't have domesticity if all you're going to do is steal all the stuff from your house. <laughs> if, you, if you do that, right. then uh, right. you don't have domesticity. So you have to put a taboo on that in order to be a domestic uh, character. And you simply look at the video game character and you say like, well, there's truly no way I can do that. Um, I have to steal everything. Yeah. It's a, I mean, he's like, oh, good. he's a precision engineered killing machine. Yeah. Essentially. There's a game called, uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but if you're, if you're not, you should try it out. I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, it's called a uh, uh, pathologic Two. Um, you may be familiar with okay. the original pathologic. Uh, I am not familiar, but tell me more. Oh, so Pathologic 2 is effectively like kind of a remake of um of uh Pathologic 1, which is this old game that was like super popular um among a particular group of people. It's a niche game. It was um it was very much I don't know, like one of those Eastern European games that a bunch of people ended up really liking because of uh uh, a review on rock, paper, shotgun or something like that. Right. Um, but the cool thing about pathologic is that it requires you to make choices about this plague going on in the town and the choices are never easy and upset people. And you basically live within the reality of trying to turn a plague around that, you know, you certainly can. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's a real dark game and it's dark narratively and it makes like, it puts you in impossible situations. But like one of the, the reason I think about it is because in path two, um, which is recently re released and, you know, has all the, has all the hallmarks of a, of a nicer engine, more stable, everything like that. Um, but you're dropped off in town and you, <laughs> you know, you enter people's houses, uh, because you're, you're trying to figure out what to do. 
uh, and immediately when you enter a house, it's like, oh, like there's a there's a pretty decent percent chance they're going to figure this out. And uh, if you enter this house, uh, everyone in town's going to like you a lot less. And like everything you look at, it's just like, oh, if you open this door, everyone's going to like you a lot less. <laughs> and it's like, oh. Yeah, just like in real life, if I was in a city and I, like there were 30 doors around <laughs> me, I can't just open them. Like, I can't just right. like, you know, oh, look, a box is on someone's porch. I guess I'll open that and see what's in it. Like, that doesn't – like, Pathologic Tree just kind of reminds you, like, yeah, this isn't normal. You can't do that. Yeah. Um, and I mean that – isn't, isn't that also like the – one of the basic um, things that contributes to the verisimilitude of the Elder Scrolls games? Like, yeah. the fact that – Items that you don't own are not just yours to take. <laughs> yeah, people get upset with you. Or like um, yeah. it, it, I think the thing that impacted me the most that way was if you, you – that there's like a way you can steal in um, – uh, uh, oh, not Ocarina of Time. Um, Link's Awakening, the Game Boy, uh, now Switch, uh, Zelda. You can steal from the store and if you do whatever you've named Link in the game – it now is his name forevermore for anyone who talks to him is thief. And I, oh yeah. I remember that. Like that branding of like, Oh no, you can't do that without a consequence was just so striking to me. It's like, wow, that's, that's stern. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just like, but, I mean, like to me, this, I mean, this of course smacks of like prior, Game, moral panics about video games, especially about the Grand Theft Auto games that we've kind of endured as lifelong gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, like we we had to grit our teeth when Jack Thompson was going on Fox News or whatever and talking about <laughs> Grand Theft Auto 3. And like, you know, I mean, and we had to assure ourselves and assure our relatives and, and basically everyone who cared that video games are not an outlet for antisocial impulses. But like... Aren't they kind of like, I don't know. I mean, Mm -hmm. not antisocial impulses, but aren't aren't so many video games premised on like the joy of being able to indulge in antisocial behavior that like kind of flouts the rules of society that you are otherwise sort of imprisoned by? It's very much it's very much sort of like an Aristotelian catharsis where like you're dealing with yeah. these strong feelings that within society are not okay. Like you can't feeling like the sorrow one feels where like, you know, at the end of Oedipus where everything goes wrong, like experiencing that, if that sorrow was conveyed in a real world, like you'd get something like almost like Titus Andronicus where it's like, Oh, this is too much. Like, this is horrible. <laughs> I don't like this. Right. Um, where but you have, but you have the luxury of aesthetic distance from what's going on because it's just a representation um, so mm-hmm. you get to feel that vicarious thrill and like, and, and that feeling of sorrow and empathy and anger and pain and whatever that you get out of the tragedy, but you can walk away from it. Right. And exactly. I think that like a video game like Red Dead is the same way. And I even call Red Dead a tragedy using Aristotle in the first chapter of the book. <laughs> um, like I, I think that it really does give you a kind of catharsis. And a lot of that is, is predicated on being able to, you know, construct a corridor of identification and empathy between you and Marston um, that involves freedom, like feeling his freedom for so much of the game. That's what makes the death feel so powerful at the end. Like you really got to inhabit this um, freedom for so long. Yeah, I agree. Um, Yeah, no, that's a, that's fantastic. Um, 
I don't have anything to add to that. And we're we're running towards the end, and I wanted to have you talk about. Uh, and it was always going to be abrupt because obviously we were in a good conversation. So ending it at any point, but end <laughs> uh, it must at some point, or else people will complain. Um, I want to hear about uh, Boss Fight Books and um, and the the current Kickstarter that's running uh, right now that helps uh, their authors. Yeah, definitely. Um, so. My book is up for pre-order among four other like really awesome books um, as part of Boss Fight Books' season five. So basically the way it works is that like they do the Kickstarter, um, they announce which books about classic video games they're going to put out next, um, and then the Kickstarter is sort of a way to pre-order the books and at the same time contribute to the, uh, to the cost of like printing the things the amazing editorial process, like it was actually one of the best editorial processes I've ever had. Um, Excellent. Dealing with with Gabe and um, and uh, the other associate editors at the at the press. Um, so basically, um, you know, it this is an opportunity to not only pre-order my book, but also like maybe sign up for a subscription with the four other books. I think I think it's Final Fantasy VI. Cool. Um, and that book is really cool because it's a sort of musicological study of the game. Like, it's all about the music. Um, there's also Silent Hill 2, Resident Evil, um, and Majora's Mask. Nice. So, like... Good group. Five awesome games, um, five awesome books. I hope that mine is awesome, too. I mean, I, <laughs> I have no idea. I'm sure but, it will be. Um, <laughs> I I will but, I will happily you know what I will do I will because uh, I was I was actually saying to Matt I didn't finish the book because it's a uh, it's it's COVID town at this point um, oh yeah uh, uh, so it didn't it didn't quite uh, happen for me but I am going to read it and when I do maybe I will either have you back on or or do my own little review of it uh, to to give a sense because I'm. The things oh, you yeah. say about it and like everything that we've talked about now and what I've seen of the book by breezing through it real quickly or looking through the the chapter headings and all, um, you know, absolutely really super interesting stuff. So I would say if the rest of the books are like that, I'll flip it on you. If the rest of the books are like that, then you should be excited in Boss Fight Books um, and excited in this Kickstarter as well. I'll, I'll put the, the link in the title, but uh, is there an easy... Uh, uh, vocal friendly link that you can give the the people i think if people just google boss fight books season five they should be able to find it. so much easier <laughs> that's how everyone yeah. searches things i don't know why i'm yeah. so stuck on urls it's because i'm a million years old um but the kickstarter ends in i well we're recording nine days away i don't know when this is going to go up but it's it's ending soon so if you want to get if you want to pre-order copies of either my book or all of the books or any combination of all of them, and also get a bunch of bonus eBooks that you can get because we blew past a bunch of our stretch goals. Cool. Do it now. Nice. Yeah, definitely do it now. I'm going to try and get this out ASAP so you have extra time. But please, um, you know, it ends on May. What would nine days be? May 28th. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It ends on That's May 28th. Um, so, you know, uh, that's 2020 in case you're listening to this in the far flung future, uh, you've missed out, but, uh, it's May, May 28th, uh, 2020 and, uh, and yeah, uh, go support, go support boss fight books, go support Matt. Um, anywhere else people can find your work. 
Uh, I'm on Twitter, Matt Margini. Pretty easy. Um, and I have articles in a bunch of places, so you can just look me up. Great. Perfect. All right. Well, um, thanks again for being on. Please come back anytime. We'd love to talk to you again. Thanks so much, Trevor. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash no cartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash Hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.